Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 once again as we are returning to our study this uh, great uh, gospel. Uh, you may not know, but there are different grades of steel, different grades of metal that are out there, gone through different processes to harden them. You have high grade and middle grade and low grade steel. And you may not understand all of the processes that go into the evaporation of, of carbons or the changing of crystalline structures in the iron and all that, that creates the hardening process. But you certainly understand it when you try to break into a lock or maybe beat your way through a door or, you know, try to pierce someone's armor. You understand by the results what the hardness is without even knowing all the processes behind it. Well, in a similar way, in a spiritual way, there are, you might say, different kinds of hardness in people's hearts to spiritual truth. And you may not always know where it comes from. You may not always fully be able to explain the internal thought processes, the reasoning processes, but you certainly encounter it from time to time, people who just seem to have a kind of decidedness against the truth of God. Something has happened. Some internal process has taken place, and they've gone from openness to less openness to less and less openness until finally there's just a hardness to the truth. Well, this morning we uh, come to a passage where Jesus is dealing with that very subject. He's dealing with hardness of heart. He's dealing with those who are, who are turning away from the truth of the gospel, the truth of who he is. And reaching a very precarious place where the Scripture warns it's impossible for them to be turned back. This is what we read in verse 22 of Matthew chapter 12. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if by the Spirit of God that I but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he will plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be given, forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is... a uh, sort of an ominous 
event in the life of Christ, a turning point in many, many ways, where Jesus finds himself reaching the point of of confrontation with an extremely hardened people. They have reached a point of no return. The uh, setting is obvious. It's an incident where there's sort of conflicting opinions about one of the miracles of Jesus, not just one of his miracles, but several of them. Uh, uh, Matthew just briefly mentions them bringing him another demon-possessed man, this one blind and mute. Apparently, the blindness and the muteness was a factor or a consequence of his demon possession. We see that in other places. Demons always seek to destroy their host, and one of the ways that they do it is they bring disease with them. And so many people who are demon-possessed are also diseased, and Jesus, as we have seen over and over again, has healed those people, not only healing their disease, but casting out the demons as well. And along the way, as he's done it, people have marveled at his power. As a matter of fact, here, all the people, Matthew tells us, were amazed. And they began saying to themselves, can this be the son of David? They, they have been astonished in the past. In fact, over in Matthew chapter 9, we saw a couple, a couple of instances uh, down in verse 8 of Matthew 9, when the crowds saw it, that is, saw their, his miracles, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So they had a sort of a, an emotional response already to his miracles. And then down in verse 33, we see that when uh, Jesus cast the demon out of another man and the mute man spoke, the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. So they're already kind of commenting on the uniqueness of his power, the uniqueness of his miracles. But now that astonishment is beginning to turn and take shape into definite speculation. Can this be, in fact, the son of David? That's a reference to the to the promise that God made to David that God would put one of his descendants, one of his sons, if you will, on the throne of David forever. He would set and establish a Davidic king who would not only defeat Israel's enemies, but bring in everlasting peace. So they're starting to wonder whether or not all of these miracles are, in fact, pointing to uh, uh, undeniable reality that Jesus is, in fact, the promised Messiah. And it's not without sort of basis, because among the other things that are talked about in the Old Testament about the coming Messianic kingdom, one of them in Isaiah 35 is a promise that he would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And then the lame will leap for, uh, for joy like deer and the tongue of the mute will sing. So, so they're watching and they're witnessing the kind of renewals, the kind of regeneration physically in bodies taking place that they had studied all their life. This is what will happen when the Davidic Messiah comes. By the way, that's why this phrase, son of David, is used uh, so many times in Matthew in relation to people who are sick, who are afflicted, who are suffering. That's when you normally see it. When they're calling out to Jesus saying, have mercy on us, son of David, it's normally because they're suffering in some way because they, 
they were drawing this connection between suffering and the promised relief coming from the son of David. They've seen the power. They've seen the proofs. They've seen it demonstrated over and over again as unmistakable authority. And they're beginning to draw these conclusions. But Matthew tells us at the same time, having seen all the same things, that the Pharisees, when they heard this, that is when they begin to hear the speculation of the crowds take shape, they are prompted to go on a bit of a smear campaign. They say in verse 24, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he cast out demons. That is uh, referring, by the way, to Satan. He had a number of names that he used to go by. We generally refer to him as the devil or Satan, but in the ancient world, he was known as Belial, as Abaddon, as Apollyon, as Beelzebul, as a number of other names. And so they're basically saying that he's casting out demons by Satan, by satanic power. Now this is, in a single word, unbelief. This is people who are refusing to believe. It is, at the same time, a hardening of their heart. They're looking, if you will, at the very same evidence that everyone else is looking at. They're looking at all the power, all the miracles, all the sort of uh, 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 evidences that are causing other people to draw the right conclusion. They're causing other people to draw the conclusion that this must be God's Messiah. They're looking at all the same proofs, but they're deciding on a different conclusion. This is a hardening of their heart. Another way to say that is, these are people who are entrenched in their unbelief of God and of his word, but the issue is not a lack of evidence, it's not a lack of proof, it's not a lack of clarity, it's not anything else. The issue is not what's taking place on the outside, the issue is what's taking place on the inside. And what's taking place on the inside is a hardening of their heart against Christ and against the truth of his word. Now, it would be bad enough if it was contained to just this select group of Pharisees. We know that there weren't that many of them, maybe five or 6,000 through the entire country, but they're influential people. And while it is sort of manifesting itself here, it's going to spread because they're going to take their cynicism, they're going to take their disbelief and their hardness of heart, and they're going to begin to sow the seeds of that throughout all the peoples of the land. They're going to be able to influence the people of Israel so that they move from this very tender moment where they're starting to say, wait, wait, could this actually be the son of David? They're going to move from that spot in the course of probably about 12 months to the place where they will be calling for the crucifixion of Christ. This is, unfortunately, dangerous, dangerous stuff. These people who had decided, had formulated in their minds, had made up in their minds that they were going to reject Christ, that they were going to ignore His power, that they were going to dismiss His teaching, that they were going to stand aloof from all of the testimony of his righteousness, that they were going to pervert the truth. 
were the very, very ones who were going to be the epicenter of the rejection of everyone else. They were going to try their best. Not only are they going to reject the truth, but they're going to try their best to convince others to reject it, to suppress it, to pervert it, to do all of that stuff. And so they here on this spot decide against all the outward obvious evidence they make the claim that Jesus is actually casting out demons by the power of Satan. That he is one who has come not from heaven but from hell. That he is one who is promoting not light but darkness. That he represents not God but Satan. Matthew tells us in verse 25, Jesus knew their thoughts. These apparently weren't things that they were saying to Jesus, maybe whispering uh, to the crowd as they started to make their speculations. There were attempts to correct them. They weren't necessarily saying this within earshot of Jesus, but it wasn't, didn't matter because Jesus knew their thoughts. He, he understood what was going on, which itself was another demonstration of his power But he knew what they were thinking and he answers their ridiculous assertions with five resounding rebukes that not only expose their arguments for what they really are, willful refusal against the truth, but really amount for a a call for them to not only stop their uh, opposition, if you will, but to acknowledge the reality of him as the Messiah. And he begins, first of all, calling them to drop their opposition to him because in verse 25 and 26, their rejection of the truth is illogical. What they're saying is illogical. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? I mean, this should be indisputable. It should be so self-evident that their objection makes no logical sense because Jesus' ministry has been an all-out assault on Satan. I mean, it would make sense, I suppose, if uh, Satan was uh, trying to some, do some sort of uh, disguise, uh, but that's not what's taking place. If this was just one or two incidents... We know that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We know that he pretends sometimes to be those who are serving righteousness. We know that there have been false prophets through the years who have temporarily mouthed the truth of God. We know even that there have been those who have purported to be exorcists throughout the history of the church, various cults and false healers and such. We understand those kinds of tactics. Even this week, we heard how Russia would would, uh, sort of foist a false flag operation. A few shots fired at their own troops so that they could claim justification for going in their eventual invasion of Ukraine. But Jesus is telling them, this is no small-scale operation that I'm carrying out here. 
Now, this is a massive onslaught of Satan's kingdom. Jesus has gone into places and literally healed everyone who came to him. Everyone. He's gone into villages that no doubt were completely, completely restored. He eradicated disease from entire regions. This is an all-out assault on demonic forces. And while Satan is himself sort of chaotic, while there is disorder and disharmony and confusion wherever he goes, while sin and uh, and evil is, we might say, self-destructive, this goes beyond that sort of basic idea. If Satan were in the business of constantly attacking himself, if he were in the business of constantly usurping his own kingdom, it would never make any progress. And so Satan is not going to energize and empower some person to go out and to destroy his own kingdom, to fire all of his own guns on himself. And of course, this wasn't just demon oppression. Jesus was calling people to repent of sin. He was telling them to return to God. He was pointing them to the pure and adulterated truth of God's Word. He was encouraging them to read the Old Testament more closely. He was practicing righteousness. He was demonstrating mercy and peace and generosity and faithfulness and all the things that Satan would stand against. If Satan was behind all of this, what would be the point? And why would he even bother carrying on his mission anyway. He would be completely undoing all of his work, rendering all of his work meaningless, unraveling everything he's done. Satan would be totally defeating himself and advancing the cause of righteousness if he was behind the miracles of Christ. And if that's the case, by the way, why are they even resisting? Why are they even trying to stop Jesus? I mean, if it's Satan attacking Satan, why not just let him have his way? So their argument doesn't even make sense. That really doesn't matter to them, though, because it's not really an argument. It's an excuse. It's an excuse in order to allow them to resist the truth. And, of course, unbelievers do this all the time. It's like a person rejecting Christ by saying, well, I mean, you can't know anything for sure. And you say, well, are you certain about that? Or somebody might come to you and say, well, you know, there is no truth. Is that a true statement? Or someone might say to you, if there is truth out there, we can't know it. Oh, really? How do you really know that? Or there are no absolutes. Are you absolutely sure? I can't accept Christianity because Christians are so bad. Well, who says they're bad? Who's the ultimate judge of that? You see, unbelievers do this all the time. They throw up what sounds like arguments, but they're not really arguments. They're excuses. And they're internally inconsistent. And they don't stand on their own logic. There are illogical rejections of the gospel all the time. And Jesus is pointing that out, this sort of self-refuting, self-defeating statement. At first glance, it might appear to have some sort of weight, but it, it buckles under its own weight. So this kind of logical absurdity that unbelievers try to hide behind, Jesus isn't tolerating it. He wasn't going to just let them get away with it. He points out that this isn't an argument against the truth at all. This is just willful refusal to accept what God says and what God does. 
Well, he calls them to drop their willful refusal, not only because it's illogical, but also you'll notice in verse 27 and 28, because it's inconsistent. Their rejection is inconsistent. He, he, he hits them with the question, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? They're going to be your judges, he says. I, I'm guessing you're not going to apply the same standard that you're applying to me to them as well, right? When he says sons, by the way, he's not talking about their literal sons. He's talking about people of their clan, maybe people from within their own sort of religious camp, or at least people within the Jewish nation. And we know that there were all kinds of religious zealots who had tried to perform exorcisms in the ancient world. Josephus records some of these mystics who had all sorts of antics and incantations. He tells us about one Eleazar who performed a exorcism in the presence of the emperor Vespasian. He says he took a ring to which he attached some sort of root and inserted it into the nostrils of a demoniac, after which he drew out the demon through the nostrils, and the man fell down immediately, he says. Or in another, it records a priest who took a a fish's liver and a heart and placed them on burning embers because he claimed, quote, the odor would repel the demon, which I guess if I was a demon, it would repel me as well. But this is the way that they perform their exorcisms or all these kind of uh, rituals and incantations and, and, and roots and odors and incenses and all these things. They had their wizards and they had their exorcists to abound. But what are they going to say about them? Jesus says. What's your conclusion about them? If what I'm doing is of the devil, what about them? Because he knew very well that not only had they affirmed them, they had even in some cases practiced the very same things. And these Pharisees would never have claimed that their own sons, their own disciples were ungodly, much less satanic. And so he's just pointing out their prejudice by showing that they approve of other exorcisms. It just proved what was going on in their heart. They weren't seeking after the truth. They were evading it. And it was evident because they didn't evaluate their other exorcists the same way, that they were inconsistent, that they were biased, that they were prejudiced. And this is even more evident when you consider the power of Jesus' exorcisms and healings. He was casting out demons with a mere word. There were no elaborate rituals. There were no props. There wasn't any of that. He was doing it not only instantaneously, he was doing it extensively throughout entire villages, hundreds upon hundreds of people. They hadn't seen anything like it. And are you going to tell me that your God might be able to to maybe cast out a spirit here and there through a few rambling incantations, and you're going to compare all that to what you're seeing and conclude that this is from Satan? It's just inconsistent. You say my casting out demons is by the power and working of Satan. How do you come to that conclusion? Tell me exactly. What's your criteria? What's your standard? You've made the assertion 
Now account for your reasoning. All this exposes them. They didn't want to come up with any kind of detailed explanation because it would have, it would have had to apply across the board to all other instances, to all other cases. It's like the person who, again, comes to you and they say, well, well, well do you think it's possible that you, you might actually be mistaken about what you believe? Well, yeah, I mean, it's possible. I mean, no one's omniscient, but don't you think the same thing would be true of you? You see, unbelievers love these kinds of inconsistencies. They think it's kind of a gotcha moment where they're going to throw something on the table. But what they don't want to do is they don't want to apply the standard across the board because it exposes them as well. They are biased, prejudiced against the truth. The rejection is not based on arguments. It's based on the hardness of their heart. Because as I said, they're really not arguments, they're excuses. They're excuses that they use to resist the truth because they do not want to be accountable to it. So Jesus is basically telling them, you have no grounds for what you're saying, except personal grounds. It isn't the exorcisms that you're rejecting, it's the exorcisms by Jesus It wasn't exorcisms they didn't like. It was Jesus they didn't like. They just didn't want to admit it. And all of this was driven, as I said, not for a love of the truth, but for a love of sin, which is exactly what John tells us, John 3.19. This is judgment that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light, lest his works be exposed. Those who are trying to hide sin, they do not want to engage in discussion. They don't want to talk about the basis of their actions. They don't want to have to justify their sin. They don't even want to have to justify their rejection. They just want to dismiss all of that with excuses. Because the goal is not to get to the truth. The goal is to provide excuses so that they're not accountable to the gospel. That's a lot of every unbeliever. They will tolerate your religion. They'll ignore your arguments until you are aiming them at the unbeliever. At which case they just begin to throw up excuse after excuse after excuse. This is what Christ did. He took all of that sort of false argumentation, all of that pseudo-argument, And he exposes it again and again and again for what it really is. Willful rebellion. Hardness of heart. And he points them to the right conclusion. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You have have no no other option. If you're going to acknowledge the validity of exorcisms, then what you've got to do is you've got to acknowledge that there's never been any exorcism like these. And what you have to acknowledge is that my ministry is more powerful than anything you've ever seen. And what you've got to acknowledge is the kingdom of God has come upon you. He takes them right to the conclusion that they need to have. Right to the point of decision. Which, of course... They'll reject. 
So they need to drop their opposition to the truth because it's illogical, it is inconsistent. And thirdly, he says it's implausible. In verse 29, if you're suggesting this based on what you're seeing, what you're suggesting is implausible. Because how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then indeed he can plunder his house. That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, if you are in your house, you are secure in your home and in your peace and in your possessions only so long as someone doesn't come along who can overpower you. And so the strong man here obviously is Satan and his possession and his house, if you will, are those that he's held captive for all these years. He's dominated them. He's possessed them. He's captured their souls. He's kept them under guard, if you will, for a long time. Some have been held captive by demonic possession. Others held captive by the deception of their own sin and Satan's lies. But Jesus comes in and he's stronger than any of them. He's totally disarming Satan. He's totally overpowering him. He's casting out demons. He's calling people to repentance and faith. He's taking on false religious systems. He's totally ruining Satan's work everywhere he goes. He's turning people to righteousness. He's routing corruption. And so the only possible reasonable conclusion is that he is destroying Satan's kingdom at every turn and he's demonstrating power over it. They have seen it. They can't deny it. In fact, they don't even try to deny the power. They just try to slander the power. But when you look at Jesus' ministry and see everything that he did that comes against sin and unrighteousness, everything that he undermined of Satan, he healed disease which was itself a result of Satan's deception in the garden and the fall of mankind and the corruption of the world that brought with it all kinds of ailment and disease and suffering. Satan seeks to kill, to steal, and to destroy, and Jesus was raising people from the dead. He was defeating death. Satan accuses and condemns people, and Jesus is going around proclaiming forgiveness of sins. I mean, everything he was doing was attacking and plundering and overturning all the work of Satan. Everything he taught corresponded to the truth of the Old Testament. Even when his enemies came against him, it was normally on the basis of their man-made traditions. And even then, they couldn't convict him of wrong. And so Jesus makes the point, I am defeating the strong man. I'm undermining his work all around. I'm stealing his possessions the obvious conclusion is that I am stronger than he is. Which then leads to the question, well, who's stronger than Satan? Well, God. And so the kingdom of God has come upon you. Can't you see it, he says. I mean, it is implausible. What you're saying is that some mere mortal person can come and do and wreak all of this havoc against Satan that is implausible. Everything he did disarmed, defeated the enemy. And what greater sign could he have given them than to come against the forces and the power of Satan and to do everything he did to undo their work. 
Of course, what takes place in a physical level in Jesus' ministry was simply to further demonstrate what happens at a spiritual level. Exorcisms and healings, while they are the promise of the Messianic kingdom, they're only the outer work. The greater inner work at a spiritual level is when Jesus is constantly rescuing people from the kingdom of darkness. As so many of us know, we were once ourselves captive to sin, slaves to it, under the power of the enemy, and Christ came in and plundered Satan's house, if you will. As he says in Ephesians 4, Jesus uh, descended to earth, Paul says, and led captivity captive, meaning he overcame the jailer, he overcame the strong man who holds all men and women in captivity to sin and death. He literally overpowered him or overpowered them. And so Jesus is demonstrating every day in the lives of men and women who are literally being transformed Every day, people who are being brought out of captivity. Every day, people who are freed from the grip of sin. Every day, when Satan is shown again and again and again to be defenseless against God's power as he takes hold of people's hearts. So this is the obvious conclusion, he says. If you wanted to go somewhere and someone offered to help you, you wanted to go, say, maybe to downtown Savannah, and they gave you a map, and they gave you all the road names and all the turns and all that, and you took the map and you followed it down to the detail, uh, doing everything exactly as they said, and you ended up in Chattanooga, you would be right to conclude that whoever had given you that map was wrong, didn't know what they were talking about, was aimless, was confused. But if they gave you a map and you followed it down to the T and at every turn it took you, took you to the right place, the right conclusion, the right standing, the right result, then you would obviously accept that they know what they're talking about. So here is Christ and everything he's doing is plundering the works of Satan. Everything he's doing is overturning corruption. Everything he's doing is going after selfishness. Everything he's doing is creating peace and joy and righteousness. And he's inviting them to just examine his work. But they were so lost, so blind, so hardened to the truth, so determined to reject the gospel and the truth of God that you could put all the obvious evidence in front of them that you wanted and they would not accept it. It's just a silly show of resistance and excuses. Illogical, inconsistent, unmistakable, and as Jesus will go on to say, unforgivable. And we'll have to get to that next week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we uh, are burdened. We're burdened by those that we know who are resisting the truth, burdened by those who are making excuses. And yet, out of love, we cannot sit silent. We cannot allow them to continue to blaspheme your name and your gospel. We cannot continue to allow them to throw up what are our excuses for their opposition without challenging them. 
I pray then that you would prepare our hearts to confront the inconsistencies, to confront the lack of logic, to confront the implausible nature and the unmistakable hardness of heart that's in front of us day after day and week after week and call people to acknowledge the power of Christ. Lord, our desire to be instruments for your purpose. We pray for those who are here today who have been resistant to the gospel. We pray for them that they would once for all drop their silly hardness, their foolish rejection, and acknowledge the power of the truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.